Hello, and welcome to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast, a resilience podcast where we talk about all the challenging things that we're working to overcome, like anxiety, obesity, health, and relationship issues. My name is Sarah. I've spoken on the podcast previously about my family's experience with a disorder called PANDAS, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcal Infections, or STREP. PANDAS is a relatively little-known disorder that presents with various psychiatric issues like OCD, anxiety, tics, emotional lability, aggression, regression, among other symptoms. This week, I am so thrilled to welcome American Board certified physicians, Dr. Scott and Dr. Alan Anton, to this podcast. They are both experts in pandas and pans and bring both their professional and personal perspective about this disorder. I'm really looking forward to hearing their wisdom and bringing more light to these disorders. Enjoy the conversation. Dr. Scott and Dr. Alan Anton, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. Perfect. I'm so glad that you could join us today. Pandas and PANS are both very challenging disorders in terms of the diagnosis and the treatment, as well as the day-to-day ups and downs. I've experienced this firsthand um, with my son uh, in order to seek a diagnosis and find treatment. And I know I've heard very similar experiences from others in the PANDAS community. So I have so much respect for both of you and and some of the other groundbreaking experts that are doing this great work with pandas and pans patients and their family. So why don't we start with uh, you guys providing a quick overview on pandas and pans symptoms and some of the key issues that present with pandas and pans. Sure, we can do that. Uh, So in the late 1990s uh, in Washington, D.C., the National Institute of Health, uh, there, Dr. Susan Sweeto and a few other people started writing about a syndrome in children that they were seeing, children between the ages of about three and puberty. They identified a group of children who were developing sudden onset obsessive compulsive disorder, as well as facial tics, extreme anxiety, uh, difficulty with sleep, um, and defiance. And this was noted to be after infections with strep bacteria. So that was called PANDAS, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep infection. That was autoimmune. Uh, They identified soon after they started collecting data that these children were producing specific antibodies, uh, which was attacking parts, which were attacking parts of their brain and producing all of these symptoms. And they then figured out it was from strep and started working on treatment strategies. So Uh, That went on for a few years, and in 2013, uh, the National PANS Consortium, uh, composed of the folks from NIH as well as, oh, I think 15 or 16 other academic hospitals in the United States, got together and sort of talked and had a large meeting and said, you know, a lot of these children are coming in, but we're culturing them for strep. We're not finding any um, throat culture. We're doing blood work, not seeing strep, but we're finding other things And they then pointed out there's a lot of literature on children and adults, in fact, who have had uh, mental status changes that look just like pandas from other infections. And they identified infections like mycoplasma and other bacteria, uh, even Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr virus. And so 
when it's not from the strep bacteria, it's shortened to PANS, so pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, and that can be associated with um, infections, but also with uh, toxins, mold, even stress is mentioned in their documents. So the criteria for PANS that we use uh, is, first of all, uh, typically it's between age three and puberty, although we're now starting to see young adults uh, who the diagnosis has been missed in presenting to our office with some of these symptoms, but they will present with either acute onset severe OCD or restrictive eating. And what that looks like is uh, children typically or adults with this will feel like they're choking or they can't stand suddenly uh, certain textures of foods. So those are the two major criteria. You have to have one or both of those technically to, and I'll say technically to fit the diagnosis. And then they have about eight additional criteria, which are minor criteria. You have to have at least two of those. And those are things like regression uh, in behavior. So children will have baby talk or play with age inappropriate toys, uh, finger painting for a a 13 year old, for example. Um, They also can have uh, insomnia, sleep disturbance, uh, begin wetting the bed when they were previously potty trained or wet their pants. A lot we see will have sudden uh, urges to go to urinate and they have to just stop the car immediately go or run into the other room and immediately go or they'll actually wet their pants. Um, defiance, severe anxiety is another one of the criteria, typically separation anxiety. So a child that was 10 years old and was kind of fine spending some time alone and suddenly he's wandering around following mom around the house. Um, so we'll see that as well. Labile mood, depression, even suicidal uh, thoughts or uh, types of behavior as well. So those are the major um, criteria. And then the key issue you asked me about as well is really the fact that it's, you know, this requires uh, some unusual, I'll say innovative thinking. People are not used to thinking about psychiatric complaints as part of uh, post-infection or uh, toxin exposures. We just don't really think that way in the mainstream medical community. So that's one of the key issues is getting a diagnosis from a physician who believes you and believes what you're telling them about your child and has the astute eye and ear to be able to put that that whole uh, picture together. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, I've heard that for sure that it's it's so challenging to get a diagnosis and, and we've struggled with that as well. So why don't you guys, I think you know a little bit about that too, tell us your background with PANDAS, PANS, both um, professionally and personally, and why you guys got involved in this disorder. So um, I'll answer that question, but it was in 2013, we're practicing functional integrative medicine Dr. Scott was still practicing emergency medicine, and we have five children. We sent them off to camp for a weekend, and our daughter, who was 12 at the time, ended up coming back from camp with an acute onset of obsessive thinking. Originally, they were religious uh, obsessive thoughts, and we thought, gosh, what happened to you while you were at camp this weekend? Um, So we were concerned that something had happened to her. And slowly over the next couple of months, we saw more obsessive behaviors. She started washing her hands to the point until they bled. 
She started having all of these things that Dr. Scott just mentioned. She became um, very anxious, would not leave my side. She would not go to sleep at night. She wanted to sleep in our bed. And again, she's 12 years old. Mm -hmm. She started wetting her pants. And um, at this point, we'd never heard of pants and pandas. And um, it, it took us kind of hitting the books late at night, getting on the internet and trying to search because when we called the pediatrician, she was thinking, oh, she just needs to go to the, you know, OCD clinic at the hospital. And that was not an option for us. So we kind of dug into the internet and researched. And I had remembered years back, I had seen a physician during a lecture talk about pandas. And it just struck me. So I looked it up and I went to Scott and said, boy, I think this is what Emma has. And called the pediatrician back and she wanted basically no part of it, which was disappointing. So it took a lot of research on our part, um, ended up, we live in Indiana, ended up having to take her to that physician that I saw lecture in New York so that he could actually make the diagnosis for her. And, um, and it was a big struggle because we came back from New York to Indiana and I had nobody here to take care of her. She ended up requiring some additional therapy and we had to find someone in Chicago to help us. And it was at that point that we just realized, you know, we're being told by the specialists, we called other specialists around here and they all said, oh, pans, pandas doesn't exist. And clearly we had a daughter that went to camp one day and four days later was a totally new child and actually with treatment um, returned to herself and, and is amazing. But we had to search on our own. We had to look for a diagnosis and figure out how to treat it and find those people that could help us. And we just never wanted another family to have to suffer the way we had. So that's how we got involved. Wow, that's amazing. Because I would have thought certainly you guys with your medical backgrounds, it might have been kind of an easier road. Honestly, it sounds so similar to to what I went through and, and a lot of other parents. So um yeah, that's that's so challenging and glad to hear that treatment obviously worked so well for her. So why don't you tell us some of the key treatments that um, that either she had used or that you guys are using in your clinic um, and and what you've had success with? Yeah, so, um, you know, when this first happened, uh, when we saw Emma and we did some lab work on her, we found out that she had actually Lyme disease, which she likely contracted in Michigan at her right. summer camp, uh, which is one of the causes of PANS. She also had really high uh, strep titers, streptococcal titers, me meaning that may have been a past exposure or uh, a current exposure as well. It's difficult to tell sometimes. Uh, I'd say diagnosis is the first beginning of treatment really. So I always tell parents, um, you know, you have to be a bit careful. Sometimes when you're on the internet, people will insist that you have to do this test or that test. Really, it's a clinical diagnosis. It's based on signs, symptoms, what the child in front of you looks like, and also excluding other things. So being sure to exclude a central nervous system problem like a mass. Some of these children may need an MRI or other testing. A, a very acutely ill child likely would need hospitalization and, and check for meningitis and infections of the brain and fluid around the brain. But once you've established your diagnosis, then um, looking to treatment. And so we looked back on that a few years after she got better and said, you know, what did we do? What did we find? And, and so we formulated a process. And so the process we use for adult 
patients and for children with PANS. And we call it the fully functional process. And what we do basically is the first step is, as I'd said, identifying what's going on. Uh, the next step, there's five steps. So the second step is reduce. So we try and reduce those things that are negatively impacting their health. So we look at diet. So a lot of foods are inflammatory, certainly mm-hmm. processed sugars, preservatives, things like that, but also things like gluten and in some people dairy. And we also test these children for food allergies and sensitivities because they can produce neurologic signs and symptoms. In fact, if you find IgG reactions to foods in children and eliminate them, the studies have shown in the neurology journals, you can eliminate childhood migraines. So we do some of those things, try and identify what's going on, reduce the things that are negatively impacting their health. That also has to do with reducing stress. So um, we like to make sure if we can, these children are in some form of therapy and really it has to be family therapy. Mm-hmm. This, as you know, affects everyone. And so once we've done that and we've listened to those things and, and see what we can find, uh, then we try and optimize detoxification. That's our third step, optimize. So you're looking at uh, things to optimize detoxification. There are some supplements and things that can increase child's ability to detoxify through their liver. I will tell you that the vast majority of children that we see with PANS and even adults with other types of neuropsychiatric complaints have issues with detoxification. So what happens is they get into an environment, commonly can be a moldy house or eating lots of processed foods or living near a field where people are spraying uh, chemicals and that disrupts the immune system. Then an infection, which in most kids would be pretty benign, like maybe a strep throat suddenly produces all of these symptoms. And so um, once we've optimized detoxification, uh, then we support. And so we try and support the family. Uh, We support the child and we look at supporting um, their immune system. There's some specific things you can do for that, uh, both some supplements. And then there are some other medications we use like low dose naltrexone. It's a medication that really has a a great effect on stabilizing the immune system and helping a lot with behavior. Um, Other specific key treatments obviously are if you're finding a specific infection to treat and you feel like it's what's driving the behavior, um, then you treat it. And so there are times when we use antibiotics. There are other times where we use herbal medications to treat infections it just depends on the setting and what we've uh, what we found, and then you can do some other treatments as well. And other um, you know other things you can try. It, this is an inflammatory disorder, uh, so you can try simple things. We try and stay natural, so we will usually start out with curcumin. It's a great natural anti-inflammatory. It also has some antibacterial properties, so it's it's a good choice. Um, if not, we can also try either ibuprofen or um, naproxen sodium. I'm not sure what that would be called where you are, but um, I think that's the generic name. And then moving up from there, if you have a, um, you know, if you have to use antibiotics, we will use antibiotics. And then if you have a severely affected child, um, you can look at immunomodulatory therapies. And so there are basically several things. Steroids technically prednisone, things like that fall in this category. Those are things that um, re-regulate the immune system, decrease inflammation, and help with symptoms. You have to be a bit careful. Some children do not respond well, uh, and it will make their agitation a lot worse. So you have to be extremely careful when you're, when you're trying that. It's not the answer for everyone. 
And then ultimately, some children may go on. And because of our organized regimen approach, it's not very many of our kids that will go on to require IV, IG, or intravenous immunoglobulin infusion. Um, so it's probably less than 20%, actually. And there are some other immunomodulatory treatments you can do. Plasmapheresis is one, which kind of think of that as filtering the blood. And then there are some other medications. Rituximab is a medicine you can use which is immunosuppressive medicine, not my favorite. None of those things are my favorite. You use them when you need to. Um, but certainly if you can interrupt things before that, re-regulate the immune system, treat the infection, a lot of these children will recover. Amazing. So what is it with pandas and pans that make it so challenging to treat? I mean, you guys seem to have a great system going, um, and, and obviously that's from years of work. But just when I've had in my own experience, it seems very piecemeal. It's hard to find somebody with this holistic approach. And so is that part of the challenge, or are there other things, just the nature of these disorders that make them so challenging to treat? Well, I think you bring up a great point. Um, I think a lot of people are approaching this in a piecemeal fashion, and it really needs a systematic approach like our five-step approach. So you're looking at three entities. You're looking at the doctor who's treating, you're looking at the parents, and then you're looking at the child. And so a lot of these children are preteens that we see, and they may refuse to take some of the things that we're asking them to take, particularly if they're having you know, obsessive thoughts and feeling like those things may be harmful to them or harmful to somebody else. And it can be very challenging because it is incredibly irrational thinking that they're having. So it's really, you can't rationalize, you can't have a normal conversation with that child and, and tell them if you take this medication or do this therapy, then you'll get better. And some of these children you know, won't even get blood work drawn for us to be able to figure out what's going on with them because, um, you know, they're afraid or they refuse for some other reason. So we've got the child involved. Then, as Dr. Scott just mentioned, we're asking families not just, you know, it's not a piecemeal quick approach. Here's your prescription for your antibiotic and you're done. We're asking people to look at their homes and and change the way they live and they eat, perhaps, um, you know, make different choices. And, um you know, take supplements and, and, you know, invest in things that they perhaps would not have invested in. And so they have to be on board and really buy in and appreciate that and understand that. So it really requires a good um, partnership with the doctor. And then we talk about the doctor taking care of the patient. And so many doctors are just not educated. They, they either don't believe in it or they've heard about pandas and the only treatment that they understand is to give, a, you know, a penicillin type medication to treat for strep. And so that becomes one of the, the major challenges is you've got these three entities that have to be on board and be willing to participate and understand what needs to happen. But then, as Dr. Scott just mentioned, it is often multifactorial. It's not often just strep. We have these children have suppressed immune systems, dysfunctional immune systems, and so they may have strep like our daughter and Lyme and have a mold exposure. And so if the treatment is only geared at one of those things, but we're neglecting to, you know, identify those other things that are involved and address them, then you're not going to see the results. So it becomes a challenge and, and it really requires someone with expertise who's who's understands this um, and 
that the family and the child buy into the approach. Yeah, absolutely. I keep thinking we need um, something like a patient advocate or something in this space. And I think you guys probably help a lot with that, given that you've got such a comprehensive approach. But definitely up here in Canada, when you're constantly visiting all these different doctors, it's like you need you need somebody to help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is it is a big challenge. It is. And, you know, I always say, gosh, it was so hard for us. Mm-hmm. You know, what must it be like for other parents? But now, of course, every day I hear what it's like for other parents. And the the sad thing is I've, I've had parents come to me, at least one couple said that they saw a physician, a neurologist, pediatric neurologist, who told them the problem was strife in their marriage that was oh, causing wow. all these symptoms in their child. I mean, talk about parents feel guilt anyway, especially moms. It's just the way they're made because they love their kids so much. And throw on top of that, that it's your marriage that's actually caused your child to become so acutely ill. And so that ends up being, um, that ends up being really, it ends up being really hard. And, and it's one of those things with treatment, you know, when you're asking about treatment, you know, I love a lot of the organizations that are raising awareness on Instagram, on Facebook, and in newsletters about pans and pandas, but there's a push now people are kind of lobbying and saying, let's find a treat. a a cure for pandas. And that's something that's, if you look at it and you study the disease, it's super difficult. Every kid's different. Every uh, infection is different. Their response is different. Uh, Our good friend, Tom Warcroft, who treats a lot of adults and kids with Lyme, always says, you know, you have to play chess almost. You make a move and you see what happens. And then you make another move and you see what happens. And that's absolutely true. I actually have one boy I just saw recently who is a triplet. And he's an identical monozygotic triplet. So his two brothers live in the same environment as him, have the exact same genetics as him. Neither of them are sick. Wow. So it's an infection in him that's different than them. Wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. And so you mentioned sort of this idea of a cure. What is kind of the long-term prognosis considered for pandas pans? I mean, with the pediatric piece, I think a lot of people have it in their mind that it's just while the child's young, but is what is the case long-term? That's a great question. And that's a question we get a lot. People will say, is my child going to be like this forever? And, you know, my answer is no. And, I am, you know, I I always used to think I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full. I'm more like a glass can be refilled kind of guy. So I think that you do the things that you can do. And of course, not everyone gets completely better. What I would say is, you know, we see patients, adult patients in our practice with stage four cancer, and there's almost always some healing that can occur, even if they're not completely cured. And that's the case with pans and pandas as well. We've done very well for these children. We have a really good track record for them. Um, what I will say is if you see a child and this is something I've seen, we'll see children that have been treated elsewhere and have actually got pretty good treatment, um, for pans and pandas, and they may have been treated with antibiotics, maybe even IVIG, but the child, every time the child gets the sniffles, their behavior goes off the rail. Mm -hmm. I'll usually tell parents the issue there is the underlying immune dysregulation, that uncoupling. It's, it's not as if pans or pandas are just autoimmunity, meaning an overactive immune system that's attacking you. It's also immune deficiency. A lot of kids, our daughter included, did not have enough immunoglobulins 
probably from uh, mold exposure and other infections she had. So they are both immunocompromised, not enough immune activity, and autoimmune, meaning too much immune activity, and it's directed at them. So you don't necessarily need to improve immunity or suppress immunity. You do both. And so think medications like low-dose naltrexone and other things can really help with that. So I'll usually tell parents, if you have a child that keeps getting it, keeps getting it, keeps getting it, the usual thing that we will find in our workup is that the immune system dysregulation wasn't addressed. So mold which in homes, which produces mycotoxins, mycotoxins are a major cause of this immune dysregulation. I, I hesitate to say every child, but many, many, many of them had an exposure to a water damaged building that mold will dysregulate their immune system and then they will end up getting infections. And until you treat them, treat the, the exposure, get, the, get their house fixed, get them out of that house, give them some things to help remove mycotoxins from their body, their immune system will stay in that state. And truly every time they get the sniffles, they will get sick. I, I want to add on there a little bit of encouragement also. Um, so when I, think about long-term prognosis, you know, most of these kids that we end up seeing in our office get better. And um, yes, they may have some, you know, uh, symptoms that recur here and there, but for the most part, this is something that is curable. It can be completely um, treated. There's certainly the longer the child goes without treatment, um, the more difficult it becomes for them to completely resolve. And so there certainly are people that have had children that have, you know, are now in their, you know, late teens, early twenties that are still struggling with some of these symptoms. Um, I believe if you go through a really systematic approach and look for all of the things that we're talking about and find things like mold or other things that are causing this immune dysregulation, the, the ability to make this really a cure and treat that child is absolutely there. And so we, we see that in our office. It does not have to be a long-term chronic condition for these children. There's absolutely the ability for them to heal and be great and even better on the other side of this. For sure. That's super encouraging. And so what you mentioned that this is um, kind of a, a disorder that affects all the family. And I'm just wondering what impacts you've seen on families that struggle or have struggled with pandas, pans. You mentioned, you know, parent like mom guilt. Are there like sibling issues? Are there other things that you guys have noted? Um, so I'll speak to this as a mom and I'll speak to this as a doctor. So as a mom, um, this is our daughter getting sick is probably the most difficult thing that we've ever, ever experienced. And for me as a mom, and we've been through some pretty challenging, you know, life-threatening diagnoses and other things besides our daughter having um, PANS. And um, it, it's really devastating to the family. I, what I always say, there's a ripple effect that happens. Okay. It's not just, you know, in, in other illnesses, there's always some effect to the family when somebody's seriously ill. And, um, but our daughter um, was not just, you know, having OCD, she became incredibly defiant. So this once really sweet, you know, amazing, my best friend, little girl became incredibly defiant, screaming, 
Um, every night, she broke our door frame to our bedroom several times because we kind of locked her out and said, it's time for bed. You can't come in. Um, and she has four brothers that many, many, many nights were woken up on school nights. There was one school night I needed to take all the boys out of the house at about midnight and actually take them to my medical office and sleep in the medical office because she was so disruptive and they were basically crying every night. And so the impact, you know, to the family is huge. I, I, I still feel, I hate to use the word guilty, but I still feel badly as a mom because my, my boys were somewhat neglected. I mean, of course they got all their needs met, but emotionally, you know, we were not as available for them um, because we were so occupied with our daughter during that time. And this is a common thing that we see with particularly moms. There's this feeling of what did I do wrong? If I had only, you know, said this or done this or didn't do this, or maybe if I took prenatal vitamins, you know, or Mm -hmm. did something when I was pregnant, my child wouldn't have this problem. And so there's a lot of guilt that we as moms carry. And then the impact if there are other children um, you know, the, the children to some degree, uh, you know, just by nature of what needs to happen to take care of your child who's sick, they get left to the side to some degree. And so then there's that guilt as well that you've got your other children who perhaps aren't being parented the way you want to. And then within a marriage, now, you know, Dr. Scott and I have an amazing marriage, um, but it was certainly tough. You know, there were times where you know, we, we had to make sure we came together so we could be on the same front. And there are a lot of families where the parents don't agree, perhaps on treatment or what's going on. And one one parent thinks the child's just being defiant and they don't believe in pans pandas. So there's a lot of, you know, disruption that happens. And then on top of that, you add your doctor and or your school not believing that, you know, I, we would take our daughter places. She looked good on the outside. She hold it together. She'd look fine. And we'd talk about how difficult it was. And people thought, oh my gosh, you know, they must be crazy. I mean, people mm-hmm. would talk behind our back. Um, so it, it's, it is a very, very difficult situation. And, and one of them is because as, as Dr. Scott alluded to earlier, we don't, we don't know how to manage psychiatric symptoms. People are afraid of them. So if you have a child that's sick with, you know, God forbid cancer or something like that, all of your friends and neighbors stop by and they bring you meals and they see what they can do for you. And it was as if all the people we knew wanted to be, you know, five blocks away from us mm-hmm. and nobody stopped by, nobody called. I had parents drop off some meals and instead of bringing them into our house, they left it in our driveway and texted me that they left a meal in the driveway because they were too afraid to bring it to the door. So the impact is, is, tremendous. And it's long term, it doesn't just end when your child even gets better, because there's a lot of healing that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you've already been kind of isolated, and then it's hard to get that back for sure. No, I can see that. Absolutely. And and definitely the challenge of, you know, you're going through it. And then you've got the fact that doctors or, or, you know, school, as you mentioned, maybe doesn't, doesn't agree or doesn't see it. So yeah, I can very much identify with that. And so, 
you know, just thinking of the medical community a little bit more, why do you think that it is so challenging to raise awareness or get medical professionals on side with understanding this disorder? I mean, it's not, like you mentioned, the 1990s, like it's not brand new. And I'm just wondering um, what else you guys think can be done. So the interesting thing is, you know, when we were in emergency medicine residency in the late 90s, they came out with a big push in the United States for evidence-based medicine, right? They, the idea was, you know, for years, doctors have been sort of relying on, you know, experience and, and maybe a little bit of witchcraft and, you know, snake oil salesmen's the, the thing that comes to mind. And people came out with these articles and talked about, you know, to, to treat people you need, you know, medical journal articles and large studies, studies that have been done with, you know, double blinded studies where you're, you're not sure who's getting what and you're looking and seeing which group improves and then making a decision. We've seen that just recently with some of the treatments for uh, coronavirus, mm-hmm. but uh, what a lot of people, and we, you know, bought into that and, and raised our flag high and we still practice evidence-based medicine for sure. But what a lot of people neglected was the other two parts of the triangle in that article. One was journal articles and medical research. The other one was clinician experience. So experience of the doctor. And the third was patient preference. The idea that patients should actually have a say in Mm -hmm. what it is. And we shouldn't just be paternalistic and kind of hand them the prescription across the desk and say, you know, stop on the way out and see someone about your follow-up and walk out of the room. You know, we would have a discussion and say, what do you think? And actually listen to them. And so the thing about pans and pandas is, because it's such a different group, the kids are different, the, the infections are different, the responses are different, uh, and a lot of it relies, like I said, on almost playing chess with the child's symptoms and behavior and, and uh, you know, laboratories, it's hard to get a group together to do a large study on. So for that reason, and also for the reason that, you know, we're talking about the fact that, hey, maybe, you know, anxiety is not a pharmacy you know, deficiency. <laughs> Maybe it's not a prescription deficiency. Maybe mm-hmm. we have to look at anxiety in the setting of, you know, the biopsychosocial component plus a physical medical component, which could be nutrient deficiencies, toxin exposures, infectious. It's just an entirely different way of looking at things. And at least in the U.S., when we went through medical school, you were considered the king of the hill as as a physician and as a resident if you could make the diagnosis. So we always had these conferences like make the diagnosis. And it didn't really matter if you couldn't, you know, didn't have a specific treatment. It was considered super exciting to make the diagnosis. But because this is a little nebulous and, you know, as I sit here and I'll tell people, people will be told by another physician, your child doesn't have pandas because it wasn't sudden onset. Well, probably 40% of the people, if you look at studies, don't have the sudden onset component or I'll see people and they'll say, well, my doctor did a strep swab on me and it was negative. I don't have strep, so they said it can't be pandas. And I'll say, well, let's take a deep breath. Let's look at it here. And so that's the challenge. Challenges, it's, it's yes, 90s. It seems a while ago, although I'll tell you to me, it seems 10 years ago. <laughs> Gosh, time flies. But at the same time, um, you know, that's not so long ago. And when the initial, it's still under attack, those initial articles that were put out were kind of those physicians were lambasted. How dare you suggest this? But if you look at the basic science behind it, we see OCD in people with Sydenham's Korean rheumatic fever from strep infections. And those have been around since the 1800s. And they have ticks too, some patients with those disorders. So we've known about this 
for a long time. It's just developed into something else and we're throwing in different information every day. So it, it is hard. And it's one of those things that got a bad rap. It's kind of like vitamin D, right? Every year or two, an article comes out and says vitamin D doesn't do anything. Well, they, the studies aren't done correctly. They don't give high enough dose, whatever, but people have this presumption in their brain. And so in large physician groups that we belong to list email listservs and Facebook groups, you know, very occasionally someone will say, my child has, you know, sudden onset OCD and ticks and whatever. I'm wondering if it could be pandas and, you know, a thousand physicians will jump on and say, that's fake. That doesn't exist. So it's, it's almost a whisper down the lane thing where you get sort of a general idea about something and then you get confirmation bias. (laughs) And so, you know, and also, um, you, you know, the things that therapies I'm using to, that we're using to treat patients, you know, nutraceuticals and modifying their diet and whatever physicians kind of look at that. We got like a week of nutrition training when we went to medical school. That's it. Mm-hmm. None in residency, a if, week if in that. medical school, if that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I start talking about giving children fish oil for inflammation or vitamin D to boost their immune system, you know, physicians kind of look at that and, and sometimes think, well, it's kind of odd, whatever. So, and, and I would also say just, you know, being traditionally trained, um, we're not trained to look holistically. And once we're in practice, um, you know, we are, I hate to say set in our ways. And, and it's not to say that, you know, I love traditional medicine, but we have to open up the approach and look with a more holistic mindset. Um, and so, you know, that's part of this is education. You know, what, what do we need to do is to get the word out and, um, to start educating and get on things like this podcast and, and other radio shows. And we've written many blog posts and have some master classes that are happening down the road just so we can start educating not only families, but we're really passionate about educating our colleagues and making sure they understand these diagnoses and, and what they can do to help. And if, if they don't feel like it's within their uh, realm of treatment or approach, they can refer to somebody who has more expertise. So part of it is just really educating people. And it could be, you know, on small groundwork through, you know, even small Facebook groups and other things like that. But on a large scale, Dr. Scott and I are really passionate about about educating families and uh, other medical providers so they understand how to move forward. And maybe you could talk about the insurance and getting up in front of. um, Oh, sure. Uh, So just to tag on to that, one of the things we were successful here in Indiana in doing in our state uh, was I had testified to the Indiana State Senate and we were able to get a bill passed here so that insurers cannot any longer deny coverage for IV immunoglobulin if children need it for PANS just because you're giving them the diagnosis of PANS. So that was something that is still a problem here because IV is about seventeen to $25,000 a dose. Uh, and so insurers are not too keen and they would basically, if you wrote for PANS or PANDAS on the patient's chart, they would say that doesn't exist, that's experimental, we're not going to prove this. And most parents then were not able to raise the money to do that. So, wow. Yes. No, that is definitely a huge change and a a big step forward, I'm sure, for you guys in Indiana. 
Well, honestly, thank you so much. This has been so much great knowledge um, for myself on Pandas Pans, but also for all the listeners that might be either struggling with this disorder or, you know, not even sure what it is. I think it's just such good, good background information as well that, you know, if somebody's got some of these issues coming up, they might consider that this could be what's going on. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask how listeners can find out more about you guys and your practice online and on social media in case they do want to follow up. Certainly. So you could go to our website, which is www.vinehealthcare.com. Vine with a V, like grapevine, vinehealthcare.com. And we have a ton of blogs we've written on there, all sorts of subjects, not just pans and pandas, but a lot about pans and pandas, diagnosis, treatment, uh, the social aspect, even things about mom guilt, and even how to support others with pans and pandas and support the families. So folks are wondering, gosh, my niece has been diagnosed with this. How can I support my brother or my sister? It's there. It's on our website. We also uh, are on uh, Facebook. Uh, our site on Facebook is called Fully Functional at Vine Healthcare. And we are on Instagram uh, as the Pandas Docs. Yeah, I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I found you guys. Yeah. So, um, Yes, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time today. I know you're so busy helping everybody. So definitely appreciate the time for this interview. And thanks again. Thank you so much much for having us. I really enjoyed this conversation today with both Dr. Ellen and Dr. Scott. I think it is such a good overview of both the disorder and then also the treatment and also giving a lot of the validation of kind of the feelings that go along with pandas and pans and the struggles for families, not only to get the right treatment, but also just the ups and downs that go along with this disorder, the isolation that we talked about. I hope that it provides some path forward for some families that are dealing with this uh, disorder, these disorders, and will hopefully be able to provide more context for those that maybe know somebody or might be suspecting that this could be something that, that they are dealing with. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you for listening to the Learning to Slay the Beast podcast. Please keep in mind this podcast is not intended to be medical or professional advice. If you are looking for that advice, please seek that out from a professional. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can visit my blog, www.theallergybeast.wordpress.com or follow me online at Sarah Lady Gluten on Instagram, S-A-R-A-L-A-D-Y-G-L-U-T-E-N, or the Facebook page, Sarah-Lady Gluten. If you do like the podcast, please consider subscribing so that you will get the podcast update every week and or reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again and have a great week.